0: Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg, and welcome to the Liquidator, the strictly one hundred percent unofficial, fan powered West Bromwich Albion podcast. This week, the bag is at Brighton, a game overshadowed by rumours that Slaven Bilic was thinking of walking away from the club after Ahmed Higazi was sold without the Albion head coach's knowledge. Later, part two of our exclusive interview with Peter odom one of the best strikers to play for the club in the Premier League era, reminiscing, amongst other things, about his hat-trick at Molyneux. Joining me, as always, best-selling author of From Buzaglo to Ballast, Chris Lepkowski, sports journalism lecturer at Birmingham City University. You right, Chris?
1: Very good, thank you. Are you?
0: Yeah, good week for you.
1: Um. So so. Could be better. Could be worse. <laughs> okay. Ask me again on Friday, and I'll tell you.
0: Okay. All right. Uh, oh, I'll ask you on Friday. Uh, loads to discuss, of course, uh, tonight. Before we get stuck in like a Claudio Jakob tackle, just a reminder that this podcast supports Smethwick Food Bank, a charity which helps the community closest to the Hawthorns. A lot of fans I know upset at having to pay fourteen ninety five to watch matches on pay per view. On top of their Sky and BT subs. The hashtag charity, not PPV, has been doing the round. So if you do want to divert your pay-per-view cash to a good charity, close to the Baggy's Hearts, then go to smedic.foodbank.org.uk. That's smedic.foodbank.org.uk. So, Chris, let's start with the Brighton performance, and a match overshadowed, really, certainly before kickoff, by all sorts of rumours. About Slaven Bilic, and after the game, he admitted that he didn't know that Ahmed Hagazi was leaving the baggies. In fact, he'd had assurances to the contrary from the football club.
1: Yeah, all very curious, isn't it? I mean, you would you would have thought that talks would have been happening for a while um, between um, the clubs and and indeed involving Hagazi. I think the issue here is that Bilic feels that he wasn't informed of the sale. From what I can gather, they were due to travel to Brighton. Um, Bilic noticed he was one player down. Uh, that player was Higazi, at which point it became apparent that things had moved on very quickly and that he was on his way. And, and according to Slavin Bilic's post-match quotes after after last night's game against Brighton, it, it would appear that um, that Higazi was not only staying at Arbyn, but very much involved in, in what would have been the team for for the game at uh, at the Amex. A-
0: yeah, well, just to go through those quotes, he said, I wanted him to stay. He has experience. He's a top professional. I wanted him to stay and he wanted to stay. And then something happened and then he is off. Although I had assurances from the club that he would stay. But that happened Yesterday, so that's Sunday, we spoke on Tuesday, Wednesday, not about it a lot. When we practised the shape and everything, Higazi was in the team on Saturday. So they would have been preparing for this match on a Saturday ahead of a Monday kick-off. And Slavin Bilic clearly expecting Higazi to be in the starting lineup. He finished by saying, of course, I am not pleased. I am really disappointed because we need players. There is, of course, the economic side but we are a football club, so that doesn't necessarily indicate a parting of the ways, I'd say far from it, but but clearly there's a very strong implied criticism of the people he's working with day-to-day at the football club.
1: Yeah, and a a part of me wonders, I mean, you know, Slavin's Comments are understandable, and, and clearly he's not very happy. I think there's an element of egos involved here that, that maybe he feels that he wasn't kept in the loop. I mean, Higazi's barely played under Billich this season. He played one game against Burnley. He actually did quite well in that match. And, you know, he, he barely played last season. I think he played 16 times out of the 46 championship games. So... You know, he's hardly been a first-team regular. But, on the other hand, it is always a bit worrying when a manager or head coach speaks out against a football club. And, and you know, you can read between the lines. He's, he's clearly implying that he feels let down by Luke Dowling and the, the the people who make those decisions to move players on. And he's right, you know. Although it is possible, isn't it, unless... You have some insight into the football
0: club that I don't. It is possible that the club's chief executive, uh, Shu Ken Key, generally known as Ken, might have had the final say on this. You know, for all we know, Luke Dowling might have objected as well and been overruled by the people who control the purse strings at the Albion. I'll come back in a moment to the question of... Communication and that whole question of egos and who takes charge of these decisions. But I ran a Twitter poll before the Brighton game when it was evident that this row was brewing. And I said, So then, Baggies fans, ahead of the recording of the Liquidator podcast, what do you make of the sale of Hegazi? £4 million fee plus three and a half million pounds a year in wages, which I personally was staggered to learn he was on 70 grand a week, is it either A, brilliant business, or B, he'll be sorely missed. 61% of the 200-odd people who took part said it was brilliant business. So I think it's fair to say a majority of Baggies fans, clear majority of Baggies fans, think purely from a financial point of view, it is a good deal. For Albion, so really, what we're left with, I think, is as you say, this kind of row between egos and and kind of who's calling the shots behind the scenes in terms of player recruitment and how you balance the financial demands of a club who don't have a wealthy backer who's willing to
1: invest in the club. This is always the risk you take when you run this model um at a football club. Now we played Brighton last night and, and as you know, uh, Dan Ashworth is very heavily involved down there in a similar capacity to the one he was involved with at West Brom. And now when Dan was at Albion at West Bromwich Albion, he ran things in a certain way, in that he could be sat in a room full of people and he would agree with each person at some point during discussion. In other words, he was the ultimate diplomat. Now I don't know Luke Dowling, but from things I hear from um, people I speak to, he isn't that kind of person. He isn't that kind of personality. And it's always a concern when a manager feels that he's being left out or being marginalised from major calls like this. And, And one of the things... This kind of model relies on is a harmony. You know, the, the manager doesn't always have to agree with what the club does, and, and that's absolutely fine and that's his prerogative. He is only an employee after all, but it's very, very important that the manager or head coach is on the same hymn sheet, so to speak. As that technical director, and, and you asked the question was it Ken or was it Luke Dowling? I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that this was a deal that was pursued by Luke Dowling on behalf of the club. And I can understand why, when you mention those figures there, yes, he was on £70,000 a week. People find that actually amazing. But when you think about it, Hagazi was recruited. During the Williams reign, when Nicky Hammond was technical director, they were playing se- they were paying several players in that team then eighty ninety grand a week there was a- there were a couple of players on a hundred grand a week so actually so actually, Hagazi on sixty odd grand a week, which is what he was on when he signed wasn 't that much now he then went up in pay because he signed a permanent deal during that year if you if you recall that relegation year so he went up even more but of course he took the inevitable pay cut when everyone else did upon relegation when we got promoted this year he went back up to the similar wage that he was on so he was on a a fairly significant wage he's not really in the manager's plans and this is where I take a little bit of this is why I'm a little bit conflicted. I'm I'm very much in Slavin Bilic's side here until he starts talking about the fact that Higazi is a player he wanted to keep. Well, why not play him? What? Why did we wait until the fourth, fifth game of the season, whatever it was, for him to actually kick a ball in anger? Because if he's your first team defender, he should be playing. What are you wasting time for playing other players when he's clearly somebody you have identified via your quotes as being an important member of the team? He should have been in that team from day one if Bilic thought that he was the man who should be playing now. Managers say these things and they they remark upon this. I still feel very sorry for Bilic if he feels that he is being undermined because ultimately his name is above the door right now as head coach. The only person who will suffer reputational damage if we don't stay up is Slavin Bilic. The players can get away with it, the board can get away with it, but inevitably it is a head coach or manager who pays for that and whose reputation is damaged by that. And and I can totally understand why Bilic has come out fighting over this and I don't blame him, to be honest.
0: No, and I suppose there are two ways of looking at that, aren't there? One is Bilic making it clear, should Albion suffer relegation this season, that there were decisions taken about the lineup of the team. In this case, a player who would have been at least for this game his first choice centre half, who were removed without his say so. So that's a bit of it wasn't me, guff, isn't it? From Billich, understandable. It may even be if you're looking on the really dark side of it, Billich trying to perhaps get sacked or or move to get away from the Albion. I'm not saying that that is what he's trying to do, but. You kind of look at it from the outside and you think, here's a manager who probably couldn't get a job in top-level English football before he came to the Albion. We gave him the tools to to do the job and he, he used them very well and got us promoted. Albion are outside the relegation zone. If he wasn't West Bromwich Albion's head coach now, he might conceivably get a job. Elsewhere in the Premier League, which he never would have done before coming to the Hawthorns. So I don't want to be cynical about Slavin Bilic and I don't think he is a a cynical individual and I, I don't imagine he's playing that
1: game. But stranger things have happened, should we say. Yeah Adrian I, I I don't even think you're being cynical this is how football works you know managers and, and people in football are surrounded by advisors they're surrounded by people who have discussions with the media it's how the game works and you know, it, it was quite amusing at lunchtime on Monday, a few hours after the Hagazi transfer has happened, to suddenly see lots of red-top newspapers running a story that Bilic is unhappy and about to go, and you almost think, okay, well, somebody's doing a bit of talking here. That's how the industry works. It's, you know, it's brilliant for journalists, you know, absolutely great story for them to get their teeth into, but it probably isn't what Albion need right now. It, it, you know, it's a distraction that they could really, really could have done without.
0: Yeah. uh, One other thing, Uh, Salon Billich's claim that he was surprised by the transfer. Now, obviously he and the people he was chatting with are the only people who were parted to these discussions, but he said he was assured that Higazi wasn't leaving, but anybody who had been following Albion transfer stories on the internet in the days leading up to the Brighton game will have seen that a Saudi Arabian club was in for Higazi. I'd seen Quotes attributed to Hagazi, suggesting that he was keen to make the move. So it, it may well have been that the final act was a surprise to Slaven Bilic. But the idea that Hagazi would leave, it's not the first time it's been mooted. And most that fans seem to think it's not bad. Somebody asked me on Twitter, talked to me about the timing and said, well, it's not good timing, is it? The club haven't got a replacement. And that brings me back to a conversation we've had before, Chris. The club might well argue that they have got a replacement. Just a few weeks ago, for just under a million pounds, they signed Cedric a relatively experienced, but still young and talented central defender from Wigan. Now, it may be that in the club's eyes, Cedric Kipre is the replacement, the ready-made replacement for Ahmed Aghazi,
1: unfortunately, Slaven Bilic doesn't seem to agree. Well, he's not played, has he, in the Premier League? He's not. I don't think he's even been on the bench in the Premier League. So that that really tells you all you need to know about how or, or what Slaven Bilic thinks of him. And and <laughs> I'm I'm reminded of the time that Curtis Davis left West Brom, who, who was a great defender, and he, you know. Tony Mowbray at the time effectively replaced him with Shelton Martis, and it it has that feel about it. Only this time, it's not the manager who stuck his neck out and done that it's the actual technical director. And I mean, Kipre might well be a very talented, very good player, but the fact is that Bilic does not rate him, and that's the key. If your head coach doesn't particularly like a player, and you and I both saw that interview a few weeks ago, Adrian, where. Slavin Bilic looked like He'd, he was about to start crying when he was talking about Kipre. If that, if that's how he feels, if, if he feels that Kipre isn't good enough, then what is the point? Well, you, know, you might as well invest a little bit more and bring in a defender who Bilic is comfortable with or happy with or will actually provide some competition to those guys who need it because... You know we're investing a lot of a, a lot of um, hope in Ivanovic playing well this season. We're investing a lot of hope in Ajayi stepping up and being good enough for the Premier League. And then you've got Bartley, who has a who has had a fairly shaky start to the season. We know he's a very limited defender, and O'Shea is a young player. So Kipre, all of a sudden, you're kind of thinking, well, we've got. Five centre halves, but actually, how we, we, you know, we need to we need to perm two uh, that five to be regulars and actually play well, and that's a big ask. And I just feel that this could have been handled a lot better to to give Slavon Bilic a defender that he genuinely wanted to play alongside Ivanovic, because I don't detect that he's happy with what he's been left with. No, I think you
0: were. Very acute when you mentioned earlier the idea of harmony. It's important, obviously, at all football clubs. But if you are Manchester City, if you are Liverpool, you can try and buy yourself out of a crisis. West Bromwich Albion do not have that luxury. So everybody's got to buy into the vision of the football club. It seems to me that if you have a a technical director as football clubs... Do these days, somebody who's overseeing the club's recruitment, who's going to be there season in, season out, whoever the manager is. That person has to set the broad parameters for the kind of footballers you want. Are you targeting young, up and coming players? Are you targeting players? In the Football League, are you targeting players from abroad? Or perhaps a mixture of all of those and bringing together a scouting network that will in- identify your best targets. But you've also got to have a manager at the business end of it who buys into your strategy. And you've also got to have a bit of give and take. So that if the manager says, look, I know we're targeting young players, but I need, for example, a 36-year-old centre-back who's going to cost us a fair whack for one season to steady the ship – You've got to have the club buying into that as well. It's got to be a, a two-way street. Now the club might feel, well, we have signed Ivanovic. He's going to be occupying one of the two centre-back places this season. Last season, the manager chose Bartley and Ajayi most of the time as his regular centre-back partnership. In that context, a guy who's earning seventy grand a week could be seen as a luxury. So maybe in the detail of the handling of this, there were failures by, I don't know, Luke Dowling or by Ken. But if if Billich looks at the bigger picture, I don't think the club have done badly by him or have done anything that any manager of West Bromwich Albion, in the bigger sense, should really be surprised by.
1: We have to balance the books. You're absolutely right, Adrian. And despite... Felix's comments. It's very difficult for him to justify those comments when actually he isn't picking Haghazi in the first place. I feel there is a real issue here about how he found out. That's where the problem lies. The fact is that he feels that he he hasn't he's been left out of the loop in terms of communication. He's clearly wanted to include Hagazi against Brighton. So he claims that was taken away, that was withdrawn from him. And he feels wronged and he feels perhaps a little bit battered and bruised that he wasn't informed of that. I honestly think that Hagazi is almost an incidental figure here. I don't think for one reason or another that he would have been a first team player any more than he was last year. For me, this, is, this isn't about Higazi. I don't think he would have played any more this season than he did last year. I think this is an issue between the manager and the board, namely Luke Darling, clearly he feels let down in that whole process. He feels that he was left out the chain of communication. And and he's right to feel aggrieved about that. But let's not let's not dress it up as, you know, Hagaz is a massive loss because clearly he wasn't playing him. So you can't use that. I'm sorry Slavin, you know, you cannot use that as an excuse when actually you haven't played him that often. Just be honest here If you feel let down by the lack of communication, that's the issue. And I completely and totally agree that he would feel aggrieved by that.
0: Just go through some of the Twitter comments on this at Goldberg Radio. Daniel Darby says it won't be good business if it's the straw that breaks the camel's back regarding Slav's tolerance of our transfer policy. Mark Reynolds says he wanted to go, although Slavin has said differently. Would he really have performed to the level we need if he had stayed? Stephen Shields says putting aside the footballing decision for the moment, it seems clear that the club thought it would be easier to shift high earners this summer. That would have balanced the books and created cash for the players. Slav wanted. The decision seems to be in line with that strategy. Dave Neal says, bizarre decision, and our manager is clearly not happy with it. Paul Garbett says, I like Degazi, but on the basis he was really first choice, it's probably good business. Few more come in. Chris Adams says, we were already short of quality at centre-back, which is a point you've made, Chris. But on balance, it's got to be good business. It's a huge amount of money saved on wages and a transfer fee to help strengthen next season, whatever division we're in. Halfords Lane says, he was not a regular, prone to concentration lapses, no better than what we have. I say good business and one more. GWBA says, I like the player. Always felt like he put the effort in. Had his weaknesses, though. While it may feel like the team is being weakened, if he was only going to play a couple of games with Ivanovic, Bartley and Ajayi ahead of him, then it makes sense. Actually, I will read one more as well. There were so many coming in on this, but Richie B time says it made Billich look foolish when he said he wasn't going anywhere just a few days ago. When Bartley is playing continuously in the side, I prefer him. But perhaps that's the point, isn't it? From Savon Billich's perspective, that of injured pride. I have to say, Chris, as a Baggies fan, I'd be really, really sad. If Slaven Bilic left, I thought he's. I think he's been an honest manager. He's tried to bring a swagger and a style to the Albion. He's fostered players like Pereira, who in the game against Brighton started showing what he can do at Premier League level. And he's always tried to play football the right way, and he wears his heart on his sleeve. I, do, I definitely don't want him to go.
1: I don't think he will. I think... Um... The, the you know the these stories often blown up you know people say is there any truth in it yeah there is an element of truth in it but it, let, let, let's look at this realistically he's a manager who's earning a lot of money at a football club if he quits a football club he won't be getting a payoff managers don't just walk out on clubs that easily what they try and do is maybe pressure clubs into making that decision on their behalf i don't think sloven bilic is going anywhere just yet i think if If he is to leave the club, I think it will be determined by results on the field and by a progress or lack of progress that the club makes. I I don't think we've got anything to worry about just yet.
0: Well, still to come, we're going to be talking... More to Peter Wingie, hearing about his hat-trick at Molineux. There's some great highlights to digest from Peter's career before we finish. And just a reminder as well, if you want to support the Smedic Food Bank, perhaps donate your pay-per-view money to them instead. Go to smethic.foodbank.org.uk. As I say, the Brighton game was rather overshadowed by this whole Slavin-Bilic story, Chris. And although Albion weren't good in the first half... They were all right in the second half and I thought were full value for a draw, perhaps might even have deserved a win late on.
1: Yeah, I think so. I, I think um, actually I thought Brighton played really well in the first half, more than more than that we played badly. That, that's the thing with when you're playing at this level and you've got a team that is still readjusting. You're not going to go the full utopia of 90 minutes of dominance, and, and actually Brighton played really well in that first half. I thought second half, we improved a lot. I thought, um, I made a comment actually that, you know, who, who would you bring off the bench, or, you know, what, what option is there on the bench to improve that? And he brought Edwards and Robinson on, I thought, played really well, made a real difference. I thought Kravinovic, um sparked into life. He, he was a, I don't think he played too well in the first half, but second half, I thought he was excellent. And Sam Johnston, again, kept us in the game in the first half, who, who, you know, I thought he was excellent again. But a lot more to be enthused about in that second half. And I thought Carlin Grant took his goal superbly. I thought he he found the space, great movement, and the way he buried it was really encouraging. And that's a really huge lift for him and, and for everyone else.
0: Yeah, certainly in Grant, it feels like we've got a proper striker. He didn't have a great game before that. He was fairly anonymous for much of the match, but a proper striker's finish. Poaching inside the penalty area and absolutely buried his shot. Pereira, I mentioned earlier, I thought he had perhaps his best game since the Everton game anyway. Uh, Maybe his best or second best game of the season, looking back on form. Gallagher looked lively again. It was just kind of an industrious performance in the second half. As you say, Callum Robinson really lifted it, I thought, when he came off the bench. The one player who disappointed me was Dean Garner. And I've, I've mentioned this before about Dean Garner, that he wants to score the amazing goal every time. And we applaud him when he occasionally does that. But he's got to learn in the Premier League. There's so much more to being a Premier League footballer than that and I was disappointed with his work rate. He was up on his flank against Lamptey. He's a really exciting attacking wing-back for Brighton and he left Connor Townsend exposed, I thought. Townsend isn't the best defensive left-back anyway but I really felt that Deangana didn't put a shift in defensively and That was one of the reasons why we were we struggled in in the first half. Much better in the second half. Sad to say, when Dean Garner went off, and you know I like the guy, don't get me wrong, and he can deliver special moments, but he does need to up his work rate, I think.
1: (laughs) Dean Garner reminded me of Charles Charlie Charles from the uh, Shumley Warner uh, production of the Harry Enfield Show YouTube it. Have a look. <laughs> um, but, um, no, yeah, he's he's one of these players. He, he he's always uh, got to try that one more trick, hasn't he? Before he gets that ball over, you think, crikey, just go on with it. Yeah, he didn't have a great game. I, I I actually like him as well. I'm I'm in your in your stable in that respect. I think he's a very adept footballer who who clearly will flit in and out of games.
0: And I can forgive that. And I can forgive even the little extra step over, though it's frustrating at times. But I can't forgive the lack of work rate. And I honestly thought that was a fair criticism of him in the first half.
1: Yeah, I, I get what you mean. I, I think there were a few who who really struggled in that first half. They just didn't look like they were playing at the same intensity as, as Brighton. Whatever Billich, and, and credit to Billich, because whatever he did or said to them at half-time clearly had some impact they came out with a, a different mindset and a, and a different approach. They, they set the tone and the pitch of that second half, which was important. And I, I thought the reaction was very good. And Deon uh, Garner, uh, as, you know, as you rightly said, didn't have his great game, was withdrawn from the action. And I think he now genuinely might be worried about his place against Fulham because actually Edwards came on, did all right. And Robinson came on and did well. So all of a sudden, Dean Garner's place isn't assured.
0: Well, that's that tells you something, doesn't it? That's a, a positive sign for the football club that a player like Dean Garner, who we spent good money on and who is a very talented player, isn't sure of his side. And what struck me in the recent games, games against teams who are, at our level, teams who will probably be struggling this season, like Burnley, like Brighton. I've actually felt we've had the quality footballers. I certainly felt that against Burnley. Brighton have, have got one or two of their own as well, in fairness. But, you know, there's, there's nothing for us to be frightened of in relation to those bottom six or seven clubs. As long as we can get organised, as long as we work hard, we've got the skill in that squad to win matches.
1: I said last week that the Brighton game would probably be the tougher of the two and I would, I would have been happy with a draw. And I was at the end because I thought um, that first half could easily have gone a different way. And you're right, you know, if Albion can make the most of their chances when they are dominant and when they are on the front foot, then there's no reason why they cannot pick up results. I think Fulham next week is a massive game because I've not been impressed with Fulham at all. They look to me like they're they're certain to struggle throughout this season and that's a game really we need to, well, they'll they'll be saying exactly the same, but we need to identify that game as one where we get our first win and I I think we're more than capable of doing that. They'll say exactly the same, of course, but I think we've we've got a really good chance and I'd like to think we use the momentum from that second half to to great use against them next Monday.
0: Yeah, well, we've ground out a couple of results now. That's not bad to say. And Brighton will have looked at their fixture list, thought West Bromwich Albion at home, that's a three-pointer for them. So from their point of view, that's two points lost. From our point of view, a valuable point gained. Now part two of our interview with Peter Odomwingi. Two great seasons at the Hawthorns after he joined us in 2010. The club finished 11th and 10th. In the Premier League, his third season, well, to be honest, he was eclipsed by Romelu Lukaku, but he still played his part as Albion finished eighth. In last week's episode, Pisa told us about that astonishing transfer deadline day trip to QPR for the move which never happened and how he was frozen out by Steve Clark towards the end of his time at the Albion. If you haven't listened to it, it's still there. It's well worth listening to. This week, though, the highlights. A winner at Liverpool, a goal in a victory at Arsenal, and, of course, a never-to-be-forgotten hat-trick at Molyneux. Here's Peter's memories of the team he played with.
2: We had a quality team. You know, Jerome Thomas, uh, you know, all his skills... Frontier with his pass, Goro with his passion, Yusuf Mulumbu with his work ethic, Gonzalo with his chilling energy on the side, Nicky Shorey was even a little character, quality player, I love his pass as well, he was not a regular starter. You know, Gabriel Thomas at some point was, you know, on a good level, uh, Jonas Olsen, passionate, strong defender, you know, we had the quality, quality side, who am I missing? You know, Longhi, everyone. Moza, we had a great team. So that's why we were, like, winning away in Anfield and in, uh, in uh, Arsenal. I think we beat Newcastle away, even in a very nice game. Villa, we were good in the derbies. 1-3-1 against Birmingham City away, you know, uh, when Yusuf and Moza scored goals. Yeah, our highlights were absolutely, like, uh, it was... Uh, it was um, Amazing uh, two years. First two years, obviously, were, were great. The third one started okay. I was, uh, we were playing good football. It ended without me, but it was still a like, top season, I think, top 10. And where Lukaku scored and uh, beat my record, he scored, I think, one more goal, 15, I think, my West Brom record. But yeah, for me, it was an amazing time because I was setting club records, you know, how many games consecutively scored. The players were enjoying football. You know, I remember it was just joy because we're getting results. Y- Yusuf, I remember the fans singing for him all the time, you know, the passion that uh is doing with his colouring, bringing this, his, you know, his body language, his energy to uh, derby games. You know, we're even laughing. That Wolves game, like we were already leading 5-1 five, five, and then you had a 50-50 ball and Sharns goes 100% and just goes and takes, I think, steer out. <laughs> so yeah, I enjoyed, enjoyed a lot of my game in, uh, in West Brom. From the from the message, from the body language I see from West Brom fans, it's very positive. Everywhere I go, we still have a chat and I play golf a lot now. And if you can understand a lot of baggies in every golf club, even today when I went, uh, I played in one. Uh, in the south of Birmingham, and the guy who was working there, they had, uh, the assistant pro was a, uh, <laughs> was a Wolves fan. He rang his dad, he's saying, yeah, this, uh, and he called me this bad word, baggy is here, but he seems like a decent guy, but he's still this." So I'm like, yeah, it's, you know, different perspectives. And um, he said, oh, lots of baggies here in the club as well. I said, yeah, one day hopefully meet them as well.
0: I was just thinking of the game, you mentioned Yusuf Malumbu, I remember a game against Villa and it was the first time we'd beaten them for years if memory serves me correctly, one of my favourite Albion games and I think you laid on the assist for Yusuf Malumbu to score in
2: front of the Birmingham Road end. Yeah, I remember his celebration, he was like (laughs) flying uh, with his hands on his side, yeah he was a very hard-working player, you know, he, sometimes I just remember him, and he, I kind of get a, a bit of energy coming, because uh, he was very driven, he had a dream, like he was chasing a dream, it was, I can, I always remember him sweating and training, always serious, enthusiastic, like, body language is a big part of a, a football player, you know, so he was a guy who smiles a lot, uh, you know, he looked forward to things, and, uh, you know, in the future, if I'm a play, if I'm a coach, I will look at these uh, qualities. You know, because you have some people that are like a bit—not pessimistic, but they're a bit like, uh, "Yeah, I'm gonna do a job," but they would not add that extra. But Yusuf had this energy in him, about him that he's so looking to better himself. He won the Player of the Month, Year Award, voted by all players in the first year. If you even uh, the goal I scored in Anfield, the winner. He chased the ball down, like went pressing all the way from our 18, all the way to their 18 and gave me the ball uh, before I scored. So, yeah, there were like people to get inspiration from every day. Uh, even the few ones, you knew sometimes we fall out, but they were top quality.
0: Oh, I mean, that was a fantastic goal. Great smash and grab win at Anfield. Can you remember the three goals. I know our listeners will really appreciate this, Peter, if you can. Can you remember the three goals at Molyneux that you scored?
2: Uh, yes, it's a, it's a normal move of mine. I'm sure football. There are people who understand football a lot is, you know, one player creates space for the other. And uh, Stephen Reid, you know, he's, uh, he struggled with a lot of injuries at our time. But when he was needed, he always turned up. He was like the Very professional player. No surprise, he's a coach now. So he made the run. I remember it, of course, like yesterday, because I don't even know if he was calling for the ball for me to give so he can put a cross in. So when he calls, like, give me. So that creates awareness for the left back that I might give him. So he started drifting towards Reedy. But little did he know that the wing is left foot is good. So I pushed the ball on my left foot, which I always love that move. I go on my left foot. And shoot you know then a bit of ricochet but of course it was struck hard enough to find its way in the net and keep us hardly react to a bit of a ricochet so yeah and uh, first thing I didn't like look like I was gonna uh, that goal wasn't for me actually that goal was for Pat our kit man oh Pat Frost yeah yeah Yeah. Pat is the biggest West Brom fan I've ever seen I've seen a few big ones, but Pat, Pat is the biggest and he's like so honest, you know. Because when we chat, I see how happy he is. He's all so genuine, you know. So, and before the game, we had a thing like, "Say if you score, can you run to me?" Like we agreed, like I'll run to him and give him a high five. So I think that moment made it to match of the day. <laughs> so we yeah. had a laugh about that because soon as I scored, I just said, "Okay, let me just go." Pat was in on my mind only. So I went to him, and I just didn't want to celebrate too much too early because it's a derby. I want to like keep my focus going, so I didn't look too happy. Like I mean, I didn't celebrate too much, just because I had in mind, you know, we want to win. I just score. I gave Pat the high five, and then you know, as the game developed, we were dominating, so it looked like it's our day. Then one other goal, uh, Olsen could uh, was a threat, big threat in uh, like same as Peter Crouch. When I enjoyed, you know, top players, they offer second ball can always bounce off anywhere. So every time he was, uh, they were crossing balls. I knew if he heads it or touches it, I need to be ready. So one of the one of the balls he was contesting for, I think, then he backheeled it to me. I was back in the goal, but um, I have I found out through golf that I have flexible hips. So back in the goal, I just turned quickly, like you know, I swung my, my, my left leg to like uh, scored scored that goal. And that from that moment, I thought like, yeah, this is our day, and we were just playing quality football. Third one, the great stuff from Moza, uh, good run um, you know uh, very quality player he is, and uh, I kind of he saw my movement like I see more in the, it's not just a like a goal a tapping because it's like a, I'll call it nonverbal communication, so I was running, so he could he had two options to pass it in front of me, but then I stopped. And he understood exactly what I wanted. Uh, so it was a good, uh, good vision from him, good move to pass it that way, the way I wanted. And yeah, when the ball went in, I had, went to give uh, Simon Cox a big kiss because this is also something, you know, you can write about. When uh, uh, he said to me, hey, go for a hat trick. But I was so satisfied with the game. I've scored two. We're beating them. Everything is like we're just enjoying the game but he was like hey make sure you get a hat trick like you know go for it and i didn't even think about hat trick because that was a bit maybe being greedy because we were flying in off it was 3-1 or whatever and i just go uh, and i said okay yeah man i'm going to be in front of the goal waiting for that third goal and uh, yeah it was a great advice from him so that's one of the little things i don't forget about that day as well so um yeah, which other goal? Uh, Blackburn away is uh, Dave Challa, our baggy bird. He keeps talking about that goal, that he thinks is the most favorite goal for him. But my best goal, probably in my career, uh, is arguably the goal after Chris Brown's pass in um, Newcastle with outside of his foot before I took the ball in front of Colocini. So that was just like vision from Chris and side foot, the weight of the pass. That's just like top, top move. The uh, finish was great. I showed pace. Yeah, I think for me, favourite goal was probably that one against Newcastle, even more than the one against Blackburn. But because it's, it's not in a derby, it kind of balances it out because the, the first one maybe against Wolves. Oh, actually, I could give Paul Scharnham when he backheeled one to me, which is unlikely. One goal against Wolves where he was moving and he backheeled the ball to me before I picked it and and shoot like a low, low shot in the far post. It was a good goal as well because uh, when, when Paul Charnay is showing skills, you know that um, we are playing really well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so there we go, Chris. That's uh, Peter Odom Wingie and talking about the good days at the Albion. And it, it seems like a long time ago now, doesn't it? But 11th, 10th, and 8th in the Premier League. And Peter Odom Wingy was very much a part of that excellent Albion team.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that game at Molyneux, very much at the teeth of his powers, really, for the club. And, and you know, I've said in the past, actually, I, I always felt that that period effectively handed Roy Hodgson the keys to the England job. Because at the time, there wasn't an obvious candidate. Harry Redknapp was being mentioned. And, and all of a sudden, Roy, who had, by the way, Roy Hodgson had been criticised a little bit before that period and then we played Wolves, beat them 5-1 and he went on a run of a few good results just before the England job came up and and I, I feel that, that that run of games helped him get the job and Pete Roddenwingy was just brilliant, you know, he he was such a, a talismanic player and it, for two years I think Albion, and that was I think in his second year that game. But for two years, Albion really did see the best of him. And he was at his peak then. And, and it, well, that day at Molyneux, I don't think we'll ever be gotten by anyone who was there.
0: And if you look at teams now in the Premier League, teams who probably aren't going to win it, but who are fully worthy of respect, teams like Southampton who played us off the park a few weeks ago, that's how Albion were in that period. We could play anybody in the Premier League. We weren't going to make a Champions League spot. But whoever we played, we had a chance of beating them. It might be beating them by sitting behind the ball for 85 minutes and scoring a breakaway, which is what we did at Anfield. It might be playing them off the park, as we did with Wolves at Molyneux, But one way or another, nobody saw West Bromwich Albion on the fixture list and thought, huh, there we go, that'll be an easy three points this afternoon. We were a good side. And, you know, if we stay up this season,
1: we can look to building towards that kind of level again. It's very depressing, actually, when um, you see a lot of people, uh, not just football fans, but some in the media as well. And they tend to be um, media who are, uh, without wishing to be rude, pretty young journalists who make disparaging comments about the fact that you have to pay money to watch Albion play Burnley or Brighton play Albion. And, and and it's because Albin have got that stigma about them that they're a newly promoted club. And, and these are people who clearly have got no insight or do not acknowledge that football existed before Sky came along or, or have no insight into what West Brom's history is like and that's really unfortunate that Albion now are labelled as that kind of club that oh nobody wants to watch nobody's going to pay money to watch them and a couple of years of survival would probably lose that tag and maybe if they can make a bit of progress in the future they will finally relinquish that tag
0: right then let's get to our trivia quiz question from last week this was a player I
1: think was it in the 90s who no um I, I, I said he signed a five-and-a-half-year deal in 2005. Now, a few people actually took the, the that as being that he signed for the club in 2005, and he didn't. He actually signed the new deal in 2005. Well, he was actually Neil Clement. Neil Clement. Neil Clement was the last player to sign a contract of that length. Wow. Wow. Um, well,
0: We were talking uh, on Twitter the other day, as you do, uh, about best value Albion signings, and somebody chipped in. Neil Clement, free transfer, I think I'm right in saying, uh, signed on not quite about 100 grand, but you it? might as well call it. Yeah, you might as well yeah. call
1: it a free transfer, might you? One
0: of the five players bought in at the end of the season when Gary Megson came in as manager, and five deadline day signings. What a phenomenal signing he was. Fully worth five and a half years of my money. And I'm, I, I thought he was a, a real, real uh, Albion legend in my time. Neil Clever, top player, top player. Anyway, Chris, thank you very much indeed. It's time to go. What an interesting time we live in, Shall we, we, ask another,
1: should we ask another trivia question? Go on then, go on. Go on then. It, seeing as it's Fulham, mm. um, Why well, Albion... Um, beat Fulham in the League Cup tie in 2005, I think it was. Who scored his best ever Albion goal that day? And if you were there, you will know. 2005 League Cup tie at, at Fulham. Oh, yes, at Fulham. Brian Robson's manager, yeah. OK,
0: all right. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, we'll see you next week, uh, Chris. And again, it'll be a Tuesday edition because we've got yet another Monday night 5.30 kick-off. They don't realise how that clashes with my daughter's swimming, do they, against Fulham. But hopefully we'll be back celebrating uh, three points and still having Slavin Bilic as manager. I'll see you then, Chris. See ya.